0: Man, I am excited because last week, Pastor Dave has started to talk to us about discipleship. And I love this topic of discipleship because... Jesus loved it. Jesus loved doing discipleship. We know about these 12 disciples. And yet, I feel like we as Christians, we don't always give enough emphasis on discipleship. So today, I want to do something special. I want to take you on a little tour back 2,000 years ago and try to put all ourselves into Jesus' feet and try to imagine what must have, what must have been like to have disciples, or to be a disciple of Jesus? What was it like for a Jew at that time to experience discipleship? And then I want to, when we discover these things, I want to take these things back to us, to our time today, and see what can we learn from these things for us today. So let me start with a prayer, and then we can get right started. Father, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much that you came down to earth to live a life like us to die on the cross for us so that we can be saved. But ultimately, we know all of this because of your discipleship, God. And I just pray that we'll get in a deeper appreciation of what you've done and that you speak to every single one of us, including me, God. I want to hear from you, God. And I just pray that all of us will experience you in a new way. In your holy name I pray, amen. Amen. So, 2,000 years ago, or over 2,000 years ago, to around 6 to 4 B.C., 6 to 4 before Christ, is when Jesus Christ was born. I know it's kind of ironic. We, know, we have kind of figured out with some historical fact that he wasn't actually born on zero. Yeah. He was born a couple of years beforehand. But he would probably be known as baby Yeshua, baby Jesus. And he was, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, but He was born in Bethlehem in the town of David, King David, the King David that had a promise from God that his line will be on the throne forever. And that one day out of his lineage, there will be a king that will rescue all. So fitting that Jesus actually was born into his city because Jesus is from his line both from Joseph and Mary, actually, which if you see both lineages in the, in the gospel, it's really cool that both lineages point back to David. But he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of an unimportant town when one of his disciples came and said, wait, Jesus of Nazareth? What good comes of Nazareth? Because there's never been any one important, no prophet, nothing coming out of Nazareth. But God chose to live in that small, unimportant town. Nazareth is a town in Galilee. Galilee is in another part of Israel, right? And Galilee was known, so, so if you put yourself into the people in, or in Jerusalem, they would have thought of the Galileans as they're the ones with the weird accents. They're the ones that are a tiny bit culturally wacky because there is trade routes going through that. So there's a lot of like, cultural diversity going on in that, much more than you would have in isolation in the mountains in Jerusalem. So for them, I was like, this is this really f- weird, faraway thing. And there's Samaria in between Jerusalem and Galilee that's separating. So people were usually going around Samaria to go through. So they're just so far away, really. But Jesus chose to live in there and to grow up in there. Okay. To understand discipleship and what it must have been like, we must understand what the education system was like for Jesus in that time. Because I can't speak, I, I've not been educated here in America, but I'm sure it's probably somewhat similar to what it would be like in Germany. But it's completely different what it is in that time. Because we have all of these different subjects we have sciences, math, different languages, all of these different things. But for Jesus' time and age, there was one subject. That subject was the Torah, the Hebrew Bible our Old Testament, right? And so I want to kind of talk you through about what the education system like. So at the age of five to six, Jesus would have gone to primary school and they called it Beth Sefer, the house of books. And if the subject was primarily the Torah, what they would do, they would start to memorize it. Memorize it. We can look up the Bible really quickly on our fingertips. We don't need to memorize it. It's lucky if some of us know a few verses, right? For them, they knew all of them. By the age of 10, you would have learned the first five books of the Bible. Completely off by heart. That's crazy, isn't it? And it's because they didn't have not even a Torah at their homes. The only places where you would usually find a Torah... It's in the temple or the synagogues. There's no just a travel Torah that you take with you. No, there were individual scrolls that were all like stored in in these holy places, right? So for them, they had to memorize it so that they could talk and recite the Torah to one another. And in the community area, if you it wrong, you have everybody around you being like, ah, uh, you, you see what you've done? You've done it wrong. <laughs> it's actually like this, <laughs> right? So in this culture, like it was all about memorizing and knowing the word of God. And they would probably also learn how to read and write it for the times when they're in the synagogue. But that's when you start with the age of five to six and by year 10, you know the first five books already. And then and around age 12 or 13, is when you go to secondary school, but not everybody. A few, pe- a few students that are not as talented in reciting, and not as talented in like, talking about the Torah, they would probably drop out, and they would start doing their trade, the father's trade. It might be fishing, it might be carpentry, it might be, I don't know, architecture, it might be anything really, right? Whatever in- is in your family, that's what you would usually do. But those few talented, they would go to Beth Midrash, the house of study. That's middle school, right? And in there, what you start to do is you start to not just talk about reciting the Torah itself, but also about the oral traditions. Because you have the written Torah, the things that have been actually written down, the God's law, but then you have also a whole bunch of oral interpretation of this law and how it applies to every single day, uh, every single aspect of life. And they would have intense discussions and debates, and it's... And, and, the school there is not quiet. It's not think. No, it's a lot of discussions, a lot of groups where they would talk to one another and where they would try to see. Okay, this is what the law says, but this rabbi says that's what the law means. This rabbi says that's that what that's what the law means. How do we apply this to these situations? And situations I don't know, like like my father's oxen has been slaughtered by my uncle's wife or something like this. Well, how do we deal with this kind of situation, right? Like, it's very specific things, and they know how to apply God's law to all different types of situations in your life to have this community. And then at about age 15 to 16, that's then, again, if you're good enough. If you're not, again, you drop out and do your father's trade. But if you're good enough, you applied for a rabbi, and said, I want to follow you, and I want to learn what you have to teach. And the rabbi gets all of these applications like, I don't think I want you, I don't think I want you, maybe you. What is the criteria of a rabbi? What is the criteria for a rabbi to choose his students, to choose his talmidim? That's the Hebrew word. Pastor Dave has taught us last week what the Greek word was, and the Hebrew word is talmidim, students. It means imitate us. It means follow us, students. But not students like classroom students. Follow us. They would literally follow their rabbi and they would imitate their rabbi. And that's the key. A rabbi was choosing his Talmudim depending on if they could become like them. The rabbi would choose someone if. I believe, if I was a rabbi, I would only choose someone if I believed that they could be like me in every aspect of life. The way that I eat, the way that I pray, the way that I speak to people, every single aspect of life. And most importantly, can they embody my teaching in their lives and can they pass it on to someone else? The rabbi is literally trying to make copies of himself onto other people. That is the criteria, and if he doesn't think that you can do it, you're not going to be his his Talmudim. And then you follow him for a significant amount of years, and at about the age of 30 is when you can become a rabbi yourself. If we now think about Jesus, we see him when he was a baby in the Bible, and the next time we see him is when he is 12. Do you remember the story in the temple when he was left behind? Stories in Luke 2. After three days, they found him in the temple. So what happens? They went to, to the temple in Jerusalem, which they do every year for Passover. That's a thing that you do uh, in Israel. It's one of the f- big festivals that we have been talking about last year. I'm probably gonna be talking about again, <laughs> as I know past today. <laughs> so they would go to Passover, which we celebrate Easter at that time, right? And uh, they go to the temple and they do all of the celebrations and then they head it back. Okay? So they're heading back after. Oh, sorry. So they're heading back and then they forget Jesus. It's a whole home alone situation. (laughs) (laughs) Right? They're already a day's worth away trying to camp and then that's when they realize they forgot Jesus. How could they? What horrible parents, right? (laughs) The thing is, they travel in groups. Why wouldn't they? Like if the whole town is going up to Jerusalem at the same time, why wouldn't they travel in groups? So I can pretty well imagine Mary and Joseph thought he's playing with his cousin John. He's traveling with John's family or one of his other friend's family. And then when they made camp and they were like, hey, uh, have you seen Jesus? No. Oh, Jesus not with you? No, I thought he was with you. Is Jesus with you? No, he's not. Where's Jesus? And then home Alone situation, Jesus, falls over, right? <laughs> and they're heading straight back to Jerusalem, but they don't find him for three days. And that's where we start. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, uh, asking them que- questions. That's the thing that a good student does, or good scholars in, in general, and all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding, at his answers. Um, that's so fascinating. That, that shows me he was a really, really good student. And he would have made it far in the education system because they were astonished by his questions and his answers. I mean, for us, in hindsight, it's, it's Jesus, of course, right? But for that time, like, he, wow, he would have made it far. Yeah. And then Mary comes and Mary says, Jesus, what... You've given us a big shock. What, why, what are you doing here? And Jesus is like, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? Some translations say I have to be in my father's house, but I think the term that it says in the King James, I have to be about my father's business, is a lot more fitting. I have to do what my father does. That was the time when Jesus was either going to keep on in school or he was going to go and do his work that his father does, carpentry. But because he was just in the temple and doing all of these things, he wasn't saying, I have to do carpentry like my father, Joseph. I have to teach the good love of my father in heaven. Yeah. He was pointing to God in heaven and not to Joseph, which is like, wow, <laughs> so awesome. So the next time we see Jesus is when he's 30. And... He is picking his disciples. And I find this very fascinating, because did you notice what type of disciples he's choosing? He's not going to the local synagogue. He's not going to the next seminary and picking the best students. He's picking the people that are already working. They are already fishing. They are tax collectors. We, we have all sorts of different disciples. They were all working already, which means they have already failed in the education system. All of them have already dropped out, and they were already, I don't know at what point, they might have been dropped out after primary school, or they might have not been accepted by a rabbi. Whatever it is, they weren't good enough to make it far enough to be disciples. But instead of going to the synagogue where the potential new disciples could be, he goes to the ones that are already rejected and says, I want you to be my disciple. Will you follow me? That's us. We are already the ones that are rejected, the ones that are making mistakes. And we see it in the story of Israel again and again. That is our human conditions, how much we fail again and again. And God chooses us anyway. Isn't that powerful? God chooses us anyway and wants us to be his Talmudim, his disciples. So, what does it look like for him to be a teacher? Oh, one last thing about this. Isn't that interesting that disciples weren't even still afterwards, still weren't fit? If you, read the, if you read the Gospels, you actually see how many mistakes these disciples make. They were hot-headed. They were talking about, let's fire and brimstone, go down on the city because they rejected you. And Jesus is like, mm, you're not getting it. <laughs> so many mistakes. And even by the time that Jesus went on the cross, the time when the rabbi needed his students the most, Peter rejected him and Judas betrayed him. That was huge because a rabbi-student relationship is so important and is so close. A rabbi and a student are closer than a parent and his child. There's literally teaching that says if your parents are kidnapped and when your rabbi is kidnapped, you ransom your rabbi before your parents. That is how close this relationship is supposed to be. Be And they, they teach saying, because your parents are the ones that brought you to this world, but the rabbis are the ones that bring you to the world to come, right? But this relationship is so close, so tight, and for them to fail all the way along until the cross when Jesus needed them most and to reject him, wow. I don't think they were that fit, but are we really? We make mistakes still. And Jesus chose them anyway. And I think... Judas like Judas killed himself afterwards, but Peter, he got redemption. Jesus went back to Peter and said, "Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?" And then he put him back into place of his apostles. And I think it was the Holy Spirit that finally changed the apostles, the disciples, to people that finally could follow him truly, because that's when the church exploded is through the Holy Spirit. It needs our willingness to follow, but it needs God's power for us to become like him. So how did Jesus teach? Jesus taught by example. At one point, the disciples were arguing, who's going to be the bigger one in, the, in heaven? Who's going to sit on the right side of the throne, right? Of course it would be me. Look at what I've done. No, are you, are you silly now? I should be there. And Jesus is like, again, it's like, hmm. So what does he do? He teaches by example. And he goes, and he, at one point, he takes his coat off, and he goes on his knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. He's a rabbi. A rabbi doesn't wash feet. A rabbi is the one that gets his feet washed. Right? But he's showing by example that the same way that he, as a rabbi, kneels down and washes his disciples' feet is the same way that he as God lowered himself to be human and is the same way that we as children of God are supposed to humble ourselves and serve others. He's teaching his disciples by example and and he takes them along on a journey. He's taking them along and he shows them oh this is how I do this, this is how I do that and this is where they ask, teach us how to pray. You remember with the Lord's Prayer? They would have seen Jesus pray day and night. When they wake up, they might have seen Jesus already being praying. Right? So for them, it's like, okay, Jesus is praying. Teach us how to pray. And they are going on this journey together every single day, trying to be like the rabbi. You're supposed to imitate your rabbi, imitate him. Imitating is a really interesting thing for me as a foreigner, because y'all have different habits that we have in Germany. (laughs) I mean, I went to England first, and they have different habits as well, (laughs) right? So really early on, I had to learn how do I imitate, how do I become, because I'm a six foot five tall German with a really thick accent. I already stand out as is. I don't want to stand out for negative behavior, right? So constantly I ask my host parents, if you notice me ever do anything wrong, please tell me, and I want want to adjust my behavior to fit in, right? But I remember at one point, there was this really fancy gala that I was uh, invited to, a really fancy dinner, and I'm glad that a few friends were there with me, but I've never been at something that fancy. And I just remember, okay, I had a nice suit, um, but then there was like three forks, five knives, 27 spoons, um, and I was at this really fancy thing, and I had no idea how to behave. So what do I do when the food gets served? I hide my primal instincts, and I look to my left, I look to my right. No one is eating yet. Okay. Okay, someone is starting to eat. Which of those 27 forks are they using? Okay. <laughs> I use that one. I try to posture myself like that. I try to I try to imitate my surrounding as much as possible so I don't stand out. But the disciples did that every single day. See how they can transform your life when you're trying to imitate your rabbi every single day for multiple years. for them it was only three years. Normal disciples were with their rabbis way, way longer, right? But being a disciple in that time meant knowing God's word and your rabbi's interpretation of it. We need to know God's word, and we need to know what Jesus interpretation, which he says in the Gospels. He reinterprets many things that the Jews at that time would have not understood, and we are supposed to know this. We are supposed to know Jesus' interpretation of the word, we are supposed to follow our rabbi, even if we don't know where we're going. And Jesus went to a lot of different places. He went to pagan places. He went to Samaria, which we don't even t- start talking about Samaria. Jesus went on water. <laughs> right? And guess what? Peter did the right thing. He saw his rabbi. My rabbi is walking water. Jesus, am I supposed to walk on water too? If yes, tell me, and I'll come. Yeah. Jesus says, Go. He steps out and he goes on water, right? He's imitating his rabbi. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. You're supposed to live by your rabbi's teaching. You're supposed to embody it as much as possible. And you're supposed to be obsessed with being like your rabbi, which means we need to know our rabbi well. How well do we know Jesus? How, how good is our relationship to, to Jesus every single day? So this is a rough time frame of what it looked like for the Jews at that time to have, be disciples or to have discipleship going on all around them. There's three points I want to take out for us personally in our time. The first point is we need to realize what a huge privilege it is to be a disciple. That being a disciple meant everything for, the, for, for his disciples at that time and for the people. Being a disciple of a big rabbi, wow. But the thing is, Jesus wasn't just a rabbi. He was the rabbi of all rabbis. He was rabbi that ends all rabbis. (laughs) Some get the reference. (laughs) And because usually a rabbi was supposed to embody the word of God. He was supposed, with his lifestyle, embody what God's word is. Jesus was God's word. John 1 says... Jesus, uh, the word of God became flesh. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't just like God's word. He was God's word. So there's no better rabbi than to follow him. What an amazing privilege that we get to be part of. And without Jesus, we would have never been chosen. Jesus chose people like us. The second thing, is a huge responsibility. In Matthew 28, the great commissioning, we have been talking about this a couple of times, then Jesus came up and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the world. How are we supposed to make more disciples? By teaching and baptizing, right? The the dangerous thing is it can go to our heads. Okay, so I'm supposed to maybe become a rabbi myself. But Jesus says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher. You are all brothers, and call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Some of you might be like, didn't Pastor Dave quote last week from um, Paul saying, that's not it. Imitate me as I imitate others in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. The key here is to realize, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't imitate my part of me, imitate the Jesus part of me. We are never supposed to be our own rabbis anymore. We're not supposed to have our own philosophies, teaching and all of this stuff. No, we are supposed to look like Jesus as much as possible so that when we get in contact with other people, they hopefully see Jesus in us and can be his disciples. That is what Jesus is saying. Don't try to be your own rabbis, but look as much as possible like me and teach others what it looks like and hopefully they see me and you and you can they can come and follow me. The the last point to take out discipleship costs. And this is a really like like really tough thing for me. And y'all have been also like out on mission, like for so y'all know what it like what it, how hard it is sometimes, right? I've been away from home like most of my t- like for seven years now. And I've not been like I've still been visiting for two years, but the last five years I've not been at home at all. Most of my family have not seen in a long time. And I think some of my families think that I may have abandoned them. Because our family is really like the family type of like we like spending a lot of time together and visit each other a lot and everything. And they miss me, and I miss them. And at one point, I was reading um, Luke 9. And it goes actually a lot more, and I've done a, like a deep Bible study about all of these different verses, and I encourage you to do the same. But I want to take just one point out of one of the verses here that I've studied. Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem, and he's heading through Samaria. Again, most of people would go around Samaria, but Jesus did choose to go th- through it, Because he's Jesus and he likes to do things differently, right? And he's still kind of getting disciples in a way or is asking for disciples or some is wanting to be his disciples. And here we have one thing. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Whoa. Whoa. No, never supposed to see my family again that's the thought that i had when i read, read it it's like whoa but this is not what jesus is saying technically here he's quoting from an older P- P- bible passage from first kings let me read this elijah elijah and e- elijah that's the story from and elijah is a big prophet at that time right And Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Zephard. He was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. He was near the 12th pair. Elijah passed by him and threw his robe over him. So he was anointing him to be his assistant so that one day he could become a big prophet as well. Discipleship, right? Then he left the oxen. Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah And said, "Please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. Then I will follow you. Then I will follow you." That's pretty much one-to-one what's happening with Jesus, right? They are asking to say goodbye to their family, and Jesus is also throwing this oxen in there for people to know exactly what Bible passage this is about. And then here's what interesting: what Elijah says. Go back. He's saying, "Say goodbye." But indeed, what have I done to you? And I think that's the moment when Elisha realized, oh, it's all or nothing. Because what Elisha did then, he went back and took his pair of oxen and he slaughtered them. He cooked the meat over a fire that he made by burning the harness and yoke. He gave the people meat and they ate. Then he got up and followed Elijah and became his assistant. He was literally burning his livelihoods. The thing that he used to make Money with, or food with, or whatever, he burned it down and ate it. And not just the oxen, also yoke and harness. As a symbol, I cannot go back to this. There's no way back to uh, to this. So if I follow Elijah, it means uh, it costs me everything. There's no way back. How often are we putting a back door to our decisions when we're talking to God? How often are we having a backdoor and saying, ah, oh, if that doesn't work out, I still have a way back. But God wants us to say no, all or nothing. And that's what Jesus said to that potential disciple. Are you following me truly? Or do you still have a way back? And that's what happened with the verse before that, because someone wanted to bury his father, which seems again for us like, that seems like a reasonable thing to do, right? God says, honor your father and mother. I encourage you, do this Bible study yourself. There is mourning traditions for the Jews. mourning traditions. There is, um, there is a second burial in this. There is atonement. If you look for these things and Google for these things, you might find for yourself what Jesus is really saying in that Bible passage. He's not saying you cannot bury your parents. Little clue. So do this Bible study yourself. I encourage you. It is really, it's really, really deep, and it goes along with what Jesus is say, saying in Luke 9. So it's an amazing privilege to be his disciples. It's a big responsibility, and it costs us. Remember, Elisha wanted to become like Elijah. He wanted to be like him so much that he asked for a double portion of his anointing. Elisha had twice as many recorded miracles in the Bible. His last miracle was when he was dead and someone fell on his bones. So that was the last miracle, so that the recorded miracles double the ones of his master, Elijah. He wanted to be so much like his master that he said, like, I want to do what you do and more. And that's what Jesus says to us, actually. You will do greater things, right? It's tough. Being Jesus' disciples can be tough, but I think it's totally worth it. I think it's totally worth it because ultimately, what are we taking to heaven with us? We're only taking our relationship with God and other people. So we should look like Jesus as much as we can so that as many as people can see him as possible, right? Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your goodness that you came down to earth to teach us about your goodness, to teach us about um, what it means to be your disciples. And I just pray that we'll understand better how we can follow you and how we can become like you, God, that we can imitate you, that ultimately that other people can see you through us, God. I pray that you will guide us every single day, that you will be with us and that you will teach us and that we can teach other people about your goodness and your love. God, I thank you so much. I pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.